when I gave some thought as to what I would uh, speak about tonight, what might be important at this point of the retreat or at this point of uh, transition between silence and uh, our everyday life of activity. When I thought about what all that we've said and all that we've done and and what was uh, left to be said, I came up with a list <laughs> this long. <laughs> a few things, a few reminders. And I'm going to share the time with Kamala. So I'll just speak a little bit. When I look back over the 20 years or so that I've been practicing this type of meditation and and first coming to understand what a path of awakening was all about and first taking my first conscious steps on it, as I look back over that time, I think the most enduring thing that I can see is an increasing uh, confidence and uh, something like affirming of determination to do something about awakening in this lifetime. And I say that because, you know, we come on retreats and we have a lot of highs and lows and, you know, there are some sittings that we hope never end and some that can't end soon enough. And, you know, we, we, we sense that something uh, profound and maybe even dramatic has happened to us, something that for sure we're going to remember for the rest of our life that is going to influence us, is going to be with us, and it's just, you know, it's, it's so poignant to us at the time. Well, I have news for you. In a couple of days, this experience is just going to be a memory. And most of what you experience here, you'll have forgotten. And all the determination and all the pain will be gone. And you might even get depressed and disappointed and, you know, back into, you know, the same soup I jumped out of to get here. Well, that may be the momentary experience in, in the day. But I'm a firm believer in taking the long-range view and just um, put your view, put the view of your life in the long-range perspective from now till the day you die. Whenever that will be, and we don't know when it will be. And not to measure where we are on the path or how we're doing on the path or whether we're getting it or getting closer or anything until it comes time to die. Just know that you're taking the next step and 
if you're headed in the right direction, you're getting closer. And that's really all we can know in uh, doing any practice. We can't know anything but that, really. That if we're going in the right direction, we're getting closer to the goal. But sometimes it's hard to keep that understanding. It's hard to even remember that that's an understanding that would be useful in, in times of busyness and stress and, and distress. And I'm reminded of this uh, statement by Mahatma Gandhi about faith. I know the path. It is straight and narrow. It is like the edge of a sword. I rejoice to walk on it. I weep when I slip. God's word is, he or she who strives never perishes. I have implicit faith in that promise. Though therefore from my weakness I fail a thousand times, I will not lose faith. And when you take that long-range perspective, we can see more easily the growth in faith and confidence and commitment to really our own awakening or caring about our suffering and doing something about it, just taking a step. And in that, I think what has become more of a reality to me rather than a hope is my confidence and my taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. When I come into the hall often before I sit, I'll just turn to this Buddha statue here and pay some respects. And really what I'm doing, sometimes I do full bows and sometimes I don't, but in any sense, I like to acknowledge that or use that time to acknowledge to myself that my life has really become more uh, a way of life rather than a practice in life and that my way of life is grounded in or supported by the taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And what that means for me really is uh, in taking refuge in the Buddha, um, I'm not, I don't have a lot of appreciation for the historical Buddha. I mean, I know what, know and I've heard and I appreciate the teachings, but I don't really, somehow I don't have a personal connection with him. And, but rather, the quality of wakefulness that he uh, identified, you know, and kind of put on earth or grounded on earth for us to aspire to and to even glimpse for ourselves. And that's what I take refuge in, that the Buddha was a human being. And myself as a human being have the same potential of awakening and understanding what the Buddha understood. 
and I get glimpses of that. Certainly nowhere near understanding what the Buddha understood, but I get glimpses. And my confidence in that as a real refuge in life um, has really become uh, a powerful support for just continuing, just taking uh, the next step without measuring it as to how I'm doing all the time. I remember when, just after I had done one two-week retreat, uh, then for the next two years I didn't do anything. And uh, then I heard that there was a meditation center in Massachusetts and that they needed people to come to work, you know, volunteer to be on the staff there because uh, it was kind of a ramshackle set of buildings and they didn't have much money and they wanted people to come on staff and they needed carpenters and contractors and that's what I was, a, a contractor. So I decided to go and see if they wanted me. And they did. So I went on staff and one of the first days on staff and mind you, I had, I had only done one retreat and it was pure torture for the whole time. Um, I was sent, sent up in the attic to uh, insulate the attic with the two other people on maintenance staff. A miserable job. Just, I mean, absolutely terrible, itchy stuff. And, you know, like all Dharma fairers, we got to talking about the Dharma and, and uh, whatnot. And I remember, actually, I didn't remember until just last year when uh, a friend reminded me. Uh, he, he told me that that day we were having a conversation, my first or second day on staff, and I said to him, the other two maintenance men, I said, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that in this lifetime I will really have some profound opening to the truth. I said, there's just no doubt in my mind. You know? And when I look back now, I think, my God, how naive I was. You know, I didn't let the facts get in the way of my... <laughs> you know, I just didn't have a clue as to what I was saying. And yet it was true that I just, I had that level of confidence, even though I didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, actually Rodney was on staff, Rodney Smith was on staff at the time, and he reminded me that I said that. Shocked him. He'd been practicing for years and didn't have that sense of himself. And it just was um, a powerful reminder uh, to me that my life was going in a direction with a confidence before I even knew it. And I would suggest that you might discover that about yourself, that your life really has its own trajectory and you're well on the way, even though you might be resisting and doubting and questioning and fearing and everything anyway. Well, that's just part of the path. That's the way it goes on this path. You know? We're halfway done before we realize we've begun. So taking refuge in that potential to awaken. Secondly is taking refuge in the Dhamma. And what that means for me is recognizing that the way things are is the truth. The way I experience this moment 
is the truth for me in that moment. And so my experience in this moment is the truth. And so that's really where I have placed my full confidence. Not in what somebody else has said is the truth in the words they use. Not in somebody else's take on what's going on in this experience, but my own. Right here, right now, this moment, that's it. And there were times in practice, or there are times in practice, when we don't have anything else but recognition of this moment without even understanding it. And yet, with that confidence, with that refuge that this moment provides everything we need right now. And I really came to that most strongly or poignantly in, in Burma, in the middle of my you know, intensive years of intensive practice like this, when you know, I'd stopped getting letters from most of my friends, and uh, I really was just in what they call the middle of the dukkha jnanas, and that's the middle of the knowledge of dukkha, where you just have to go through a lot of understanding of dukkha. And the only way to do that is to experience a lot of dukkha. And practice can be good. Practice is great. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of clarity. There's a lot of uh, uh, insight and energy. And the experience is dukkha. And the only way I could get through it was to realize that you know, every time I went in and, to, and did my bows to a Buddha or a, an, an elder monk, it was just to acknowledge that this moment is providing me everything I need. I don't understand it. I wish it wasn't this way. But somehow, everything I need is right here, if I can just acknowledge it. And it really gives up. I really had to give up that longing for anything else. Give up that under, that 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 desire or expectation that there was going to come a letter from home or a flash of enlightenment or a praise from Sayadaw or a new set of robes or a good meal or something was going to come along that was going to be better. No. The only thing that mattered was to be present in this moment. That's the only thing I could take refuge in. Nothing else existed that wasn't painful, that wasn't dukkha. Anything from the past, anything from the future, anything different than right now, dukkha. That's a hard road to hoe. That's a hard lesson to learn. But it's a powerful uh, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in this moment is okay. And I've seen that grow. I've just seen that the strength of my commitment to that understanding grow. There was this old Chinese hermit named Stonehouse back in the 14th century. Used to be a Zen master for a few years and gave that up and went to live as a hermit up on Red Cloud, Red Cloud Mountain, Red Cloud Mountain. And he writes, he was a poet too, you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wear through. 
It's not true thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine their minds are hard. Great refuge in the middle of practice. You know, each note is just a drip of water on this rock-hard mind. And pretty soon, in time, it wears through. And you see the mind, light, open. So in this growing confidence in and steadiness of my refuge in the potential to awaken and the uh, commitment to the truth and acknowledgement of the truth, uh, respect for the truth of this moment, for me, whatever it is, um, I've also seen the increase in my understanding of and uh, valuing, I think, of taking refuge in the Sangha. And in my early years, it was really, you know, taking refuge in the Sangha. You know, when I don't have work, somebody in the Sangha will want something built and I can, you know, I can have a job. That was my understanding that somebody that I knew, my Sangha, was going to give me a job. And that was a pretty good understanding at the time. When I was in Burma practicing, my understanding of the Sangha was quite different in that uh, often I was alone in Burma or one of very few uh, Westerners and for a number of months was the only Westerner in there. And you get really lonely. I mean, practice is a lonely path anyway, even if you're in a group of people. But when you're not in a group of people, it's really lonely. You know, there's just, I mean, you just want to give up every step of the way. I mean, it, at times, it's just like, why bother to get up? Why bother to go sit? You know, there's no, there's no fame or glory in this, in this path. It's just, you know, just keep doing it. And often, it was the thought that there are people sitting at IMS right now that would keep me awake, keep me going, keep me safe. Well, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, or I'm really part of them. I'm just half a, con I mean, I'm half a world away. But still, I felt that connection with people back at the meditation center in Massachusetts. And it was a valuable uh, support. Because even though there was a lot of Burmese monks around and a lot of Burmese lay people around, sometimes there wasn't enough of a connection with them to feel that personal support. You know, I needed to know that there was a three-month course going on. I knew the teachers there. I knew the schedule, and I was, you know, 13 and a half hours time difference off. And I knew when they'd be giving a Dharma talk, and it's like, right, you know, just before I have breakfast, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And it'd be really a support, a power, uh, uh, an aid in practice. And when you go home, you're alone, you know, in your house in practice. You don't have a sangha, you don't have this group, you don't have a meditation hall or somebody ringing the bells, but you have a sangha. There are people sitting constantly around the clock, whether you know them or not. And any time you even think about it, you get connected with them. Or whenever you sit, you're sitting with them even though they're not present. But when
when in Burma also there was another <coughs> level of understanding of what uh, refuge in the Sangha uh, really meant for me. Each year, the second weekend in December, at this monastery, or this meditation center where I uh, stayed, they, the meditation center was started by Mahasi Sayada. And each December, second weekend, they have a festival called the Mahasi Festival. And there are now more than 300 Mahasi meditation centers in Burma alone. And that means there's a teacher there and lay people that practice. And, and in this festival, they all come down to Rangoon at this place. And uh, so you get the 300 most elder uh, practiced monks in this tradition get together and have meetings for a few days. And they have, they all, you know, the, the most elder and the most venerated get asked to give Dharma talks. And in Burma, they broadcast the Dharma talks over loudspeakers. So you got constant Dharma talks from about four in the morning till about 11 at night. Just one after another broadcast over loudspeakers. And each monk is allowed a certain amount of supporters and, you know, they're just, you know, they, they kind of usher them in and set up their little room as a real uh, regal place worthy of their teacher. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really powerfully devotional and respectful time there. There's about three to four, sometimes up to 6,000 people come for that three or f about four or five days. And it's just a really big shindig. And the way that monks go to meals is when they ring the bell, the monks line up in order of seniority. The ones that have been the monks the longest go first, the ones who've been least go last. And they have to have someone, usually in a monastery, you know where you are in the line and you just fall in. But in, when this is going on, there's about three to 400 monks. and. You know, they don't know who's there and who's going to that meal, so they have somebody stand out in the lineup place and start uh, calling off the number of wasa. That's the number of years you've been a monk. And they start with, you know, 65. That means somebody is 85 years old and they've been a monk for 65 years. And you'll see one old guy go, you know, tottering off up to the dining hall. And then it's down to 64, and another one goes, and they get down to 60, and a couple go, and they get down to 15, a couple go. You know, and they get down to 10, and there's a few, and that's where they stop, you know, because the people less than 10, they don't like come at that time. And of course, I have one or two years, and so I fall in behind. But just to see that line of, of human beings, current, now on the earth, carrying this tradition, it is powerful. I mean, it'll just lift you off the ground in, 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 in energy and, and awe. And I tell you it because you are part of that tradition. And I, I wish you could see it. It really is. Uh, it just, you know, you don't even have to be faithful. You don't even have to practice. And it'll make the hair stand on end. It is really, and it, also for the nuns, I mean, it's not just the monks, nuns also go. So it's just a really powerful uh, connection with the Sangha, the real, uh, you know, the Sangha that comes from the time of the Buddha. 
It's not just, you know, th this practice is not something that just got thought up in California in the mid-70s. It's not. You know, it's been around a long time. And people, human beings, have carried it from day to day, hour to hour, this practice, and given it to me, and I've given it to you. You're connected to all those people. That's a powerful refuge. You know, when your whole life is falling apart and practice is miserable and nothing is going like you want, it doesn't matter. You're still connected to that. The power of that commitment of all of those human beings. Hey, that's a powerful refuge. To just rest in that and say, my practice isn't going like I want it, but it's going good enough. There's a few poems I'd like to read, but there's one that's quite funny. And there was this old Malaysian monk, Chinese, uh, Malaysian Chinese monk that came to Burma and practiced for a while. He's very popular in Penang, Malaysia, and uh, he worked for the government for until he retired, and then he became a monk. And he's just really popular and funny. And he wrote this poem when he was in Burma practicing at this meditation. He says. Everybody wants to be a somebody. Nobody wants to be a nobody. If there was ever a somebody who was really a nobody, then that nobody would really be somebody. <laughs> That's something like practice. Everybody wants to be somebody in practice. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if there was ever somebody who was really nobody, really anatta, then that nobody would really be somebody. One last uh, comment about uh, for, this, for this time, when we, when we leave the silence, we leave the solitude, we leave our aloneness and we enter the world and we start communicating and we communicate by how we act and, and, and how we speak. And it's really important, as you can see, that we really speak truthfully, that we select our words carefully to say what it is that we want to say. And you see how difficult it is to be clear in the mind. Just, just to see your own mind clearly, it's difficult. And then to take whatever clarity you've got and put it into words is very difficult also. And to understand that there's someone on the other end with an equally unclear mind that's going to try to hear what you say and understand it. It really makes for uh, a demanding task of speaking carefully, speaking honestly, speaking what is essential in your life with those that you share this life with. We jabber a lot of uselessness, as you know. William Stafford, another great poet of this century, just died uh, just about a year ago. And um, he wrote this lovely poem. And I want to close with uh, reading it. 
It's called a ritual to read to each other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Well, this afternoon, Steve and I decided to go buy some ice cream <laughs> for everyone, and partly because he wanted to hear his Grateful Dead tapes. <laughs> I got a new concert. <laughs> It's amazing how such an old mind can be so young. <laughs> well, the first song that came on was, I've heard it said by some today that women are smarter in every way. <laughs> and so I just wanted to say, though, how much I really honor and respect the teachings that come through Steve and his monastic training. I always learn so much from him. And um, that it's also important, you know, to, it's important to have that sharpness and clarity of mind, but it's also important to have the balance of that softness and openness of mind, because that sharpness and clarity without the softness will not lead to anywhere but circles and more difficulty. And so I just wanted to put a, uh, a little bit in for the power of that kind of way of walking on the spiritual path to have the strength and clarity and courage that you need to walk the path and to have that kind of precision, and also to keep open and soft, that we need that balance, and that this is what the Buddha taught, was the middle path. And so, last year, I don't know if Steve remembers, but he called me from here, and he said, 
you've got to come next year because I can't do it by myself <laughs> next time. <laughs> and what I really appreciate is that he recognizes that. And when I said this, <laughs> right? <laughs> compliment. You can just not take compliments. I try to teach you, but you don't listen. <laughs> just smile and say thank you. <laughs> so, anyway, while Steve is out there <laughs> uh, asking us to stretch our limits, and I'm there saying, it's okay, just relax, go to bed if you want to. You, know, you don't have to strive so hard. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that we really each need to know the middle path for ourselves. And, you know, sometimes it could be that hard driving striving, and sometimes it's just a softness and giving in. Okay, I'm just going to hear the birds sing now. That's all I'm going to do. And this is, in my own practice, what has happened this way. I practiced uh, at home a lot. And then when I got to practice longer retreats, months-long retreats with our teacher, Seda Upandita, because of my practice at home, and it was so... Um, it was so demanding and challenging to do the practice at home, you know, to just be mindful when you're washing to dish the dishes, to just be mindful when you're sweeping the floor. That when I got to do practice, when I went on retreat, it was like I could really be a warrior. And I had that softness coming to it, but I also needed Seadao's precision and his, uh, you know, don't miss a moment, that kind of response or parting words when I left the room. One of his famous words is, no gaps. <laughs> that means perfect mindfulness. <laughs> and so it's possible to be a warrior in this soft mind, heart, body. And uh, we don't always have to be you know, the warrior, and we don't always have to be soft, but we do have to find that balance for ourselves. And there were times, like Steve, when I wouldn't sleep for weeks. You know, I would be up. Maybe I would take, I would lay down, and just at the point where I felt that I had dozed off enough, where I just felt sleepy enough, I would wake, I had enough sleep, I would wake up and begin again. So my mind wouldn't lose that continuity of mindfulness. And it was, it was really hard work, you know, and I tried to approach it with that kind of balance, and I also approached it in this way, that I am a householder. I don't have uh, five years to dedicate in a monastery. It's totally impossible for me. I really have to make every moment count. I really paid attention to how much I ate when I practiced so I didn't eat just that little bit too much that would make me sluggish in the day, or that I, I ate so little sometimes 
and I had to find the balance that there were times when I went to the uh, hall that I couldn't walk, that I had to hold on to the, to the side of the wall in order to get to my sitting cushion. And um, finally one day, Sayadaw saw me kind of staggering in and he told me to eat in the Burmese kitchen. That's why I ended up eating there for a while, because they, they have more hearty food. Um, but have that kind of gentle caring for yourself, you know, that you know the balance. And there were times when, you know, I reported to Sayadaw and I not only uh, slept, I not only walked and uh, sat 14 hours a day, but sometimes it was 18 hours a day. Sometimes it was 19 hours a day. And I slept very, very little. And the rest of the, and then I reported how much I slept, you know, maybe two hours or something. And he would, he would not flinch about it. You know, he would just, he would just expect it in a way, that kind of, you're going to be free no matter what. But then there were times during the practice when I walked out to the garden in walking meditation and I knew that just the balance I needed was not to do walking meditation, but I needed to sit on the grass and look at, look at the sky or hear the birds or maybe just do a little metta. You know, we have to find this balance for ourselves. So I did want to reflect to you how somebody like me, especially for the women, you know, I can be very soft and feminine, but there's that possibility to really be a warrior, to really have that determination that you're going to be free. And once, um, some years ago already, I had such a strong determination that I was moving from one house to another. My, all the four children were at home. My daughter was very small. The house was in a complete disarray, and I'm really a nester. You know, I love, I love having um, a cozy home for my family, and and. Uh, there was this just a strong determination in me, and I knew when the time was right that I had to go. Nothing was going to stop me. Everything, the boxes were in the garage, you know, the house was a really total mess, and I just said to my family, I have to go. And I, with that strong determination, I took off to do um, a long retreat with Sayadaw Upandita. And that determination really carried me because, and it also came from the fact that I knew I couldn't always leave my family, so I had to make every moment count. And I considered, in all times I considered it a lifetime process, not that I needed to be free in that retreat, but that would that retreat would add a lot to my life in understanding freedom. So balance is very, very important. Know the balance. Know your own middle path. And it's going to change from morning to noon to, to evening. It's going to change, you know, from... I notice that my balance is changing now, that I'm in midlife. And we have to respect those transitions within ourselves. I wanted to... Uh, reinforce what Steve said about the Sangha. It's being with other people that you can speak with and share with. 
the Dhamma is really important. I don't know how I would make it uh, without my Dhamma friends. I, um, I could say that the love I have for the Dhamma and for my friends is a love that's so deep and all my Dhamma friends are so precious and important to me. And it's really important to continue having their support when you're walking the path. There, there's a story of um, when the Buddha was in a grove. It's called the Jetta Grove. And a deity came to him of astounding beauty. And the deities from the Devic realms would come and listen to the talks of the Buddha because they couldn't hear it in their realm during that time. There was no Buddha in that realm. And it's said even now that when the Dhamma is given, the devas come. And so uh, it's my belief that the devas have been here during this time also, listening to the Dhamma. And so this deity of astounding beauty came to the Buddha and it was, she was trying to make herself visible. So the Buddha waited patiently until she made herself visible. He knew she was there, just light, and then she made herself um, more tangible. And so she asked the Buddha, tell me what are the blessings supreme? And the first blessing that the Buddha said was to associate not with the foolish, but to associate with the wise. And these are each of us. We each have the wisdom within us. We're each growing in different ways. And you, each of you have given me a lot of wisdom. Your remarks to me are so insightful. You know, sometimes I just get blown away by what you say, how you observe life, how you observe the moment. It's such a teaching for me to listen to all of you. Your truth is so pure. So it's very important to, to keep company with people on the path. When you go home, you won't be able to explain this to anyone. It'll be very difficult. You know, how are you going to say, well, I had this wonderful moment in between an in-breath and an out-breath when there was just nothing there. And who is ever going to explain, understand that kind of happiness? You know, how can you ever, how can you ever explain it? But when you're with someone, you know, who understands, and the other evening, Steve and I took a walk down the path and, and we stopped and just for a moment we just stopped and just hearing and it was really wonderful to share that moment with someone in the Dhamma just hearing nothing else nothing else was important just that pure moment you know we, we really can't find that with people outside of the Sangha. So don't even try to tell people about your practice. You know, there was somebody who said that it was easier for her to be a Buddha than to be a Buddhist. 
So just be who, be that purity, model that, and uh, refrain from trying to talk about it. Another very important thing, I think, is to just keep your humor. We have to keep light on the path. If we keep the serious drudgery about, I gotta get through, and you just gotta be there every moment, it just doesn't work. You know, you need this kind of comic relief once in a while. So during the days when Steve and I felt it might be getting a little too serious, we tried to do some funny things. <laughs> we had great fun finding, looking at every single page in the yellow pages, <laughs> finding something humorous. And most of all, be kind to yourselves because nobody else is going to give you the kindness that you know how to give to yourself. Uh, no one else. No one else knows exactly what you need. You know, I see that over and over again when I, I'm teaching and I'm doing my best to be open and listen and see how I can respond. And half the time, I miss the mark. You know, half the time I get the response, but, you know, it's not that. Or, so we can't do it for you. You've got to do it for yourselves. You've got to be kind to yourselves. We can just point the way as we know it, and, but that may not be precisely right for you. You have to know it for yourselves. You have to be kind for yourselves. And please, let it be all right to be human. You know, if you get angry, if you get jealous, if you see that, you know, you might not see that anger is arising. You may see, I'm angry when we're outside of this hall and get identified with it. So, as soon as you notice it, as soon as you get some distance from it, just let it go. Done is done. And use that moment to begin again. Just begin again. I remember doing walking meditation again with practice with Sayada Upandita and I would just remember this that every moment is a new chance for me to begin again and there were times when I would be on that walking path and it would be so horrendous to try to just keep with the sensations in my legs and seeing my mind just go crazy, you know, and stopping in the middle of the path and just wondering if I would ever be able to tame my mind. And at times, just falling to the ground for seeing the, the immensity of dukkha in my mind, the immensity of it, the endlessness of it, just being in that kind of despair. And then picking myself up again and saying, okay, I'm going to start right now all over again. So be willing to begin again and again and again, even when you're at home, and to understand that, you know, it's okay to be human. A few more things um, that have helped me on the path, and probably I'll just suggest this as homework for you. We're getting close to the time now. Um, there were 
these qualities of mind and heart that the Buddha pointed to that we could cultivate that would help us in our lives and also help us to experience true freedom. And I'd like to name them all and I'll touch upon a few of them just lightly. The first one is generosity. The second is morality, which Steve has spoken about in the precepts. The third is renunciation. And for us as lay people, it really means just renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion. We're not going to the monasteries, but renouncing it in each moment. Not denying it, recognizing it, and just saying, I can let it come, I can let it go. You don't have to hang on to it. The fourth one is wisdom, which we have been learning in this practice here. This is a wisdom practice. Vipassana is a wisdom practice. The fifth is energy. The sixth is patience. The seventh is truthfulness, which Steve spoke about. The eighth is resolution. Ninth is metta, or loving kindness. And ten is equanimity. And these are called the paramis. They are like forces of light in our minds that will carry us through this life with ease and will bring us to freedom. It's sometimes, it's, you can think of it as ten streams all converging together as one in one strong current. And that strong current will carry us very easily on our path. These were not only found in the Buddhist teachings. These are found in many teachings. So I'd like to speak just briefly about the first one because it has so much to do with the insight practice, with the wisdom practice, generosity. It's not, I'm not speaking about your, about generosity of material goods so much as that kind of letting go that we can do in our daily lives. Letting go of our opinions. Letting go of our judgments. Letting go of what we want for us, irrespective or irrespectful of what others may need or want. This is, it's very important to practice this, not just in the moment when we let go of, when we let be and let go of whatever comes up, but in our daily lives when we're in situations at home or in the family. Just see where you can let go sometimes. And that space can bring a lot of space for wisdom to come, you know, that time. That you're, when you're not clinging so hard to what you think is right. There were two kinds of uh, generosity that the Buddha spoke about. One was to free others. You know, that's when we, we give um, materially. And one was to free ourselves. When we understand the value of how we, how we practice generosity in the world and how it leads to a, a greater letting go and a strengthened letting go of the practice on the sitting cushion. This is how we free ourselves. So it's important to understand every time we let go in daily life, 
every time we can be more generous with our time, with our effort, and even our material goods. That strengthens that force of mind that we need on the sitting cushion, and that will help us greatly. And it also weakens attachment. So when I have, uh, whenever I get the opportunity um, to give in any way, I find it a great honor, and it's helped me a lot when I sit and practice. And just a, a little story about when when we go to retreats, uh, there's an Eastern tradition, an Asian tradition, that you uh, give food to the people who are practicing and also to your teachers. And the last time I went, uh, I asked what the opportunity was, and they told me that, yes, you have you have the opportunity. Because sometimes, you know, people want to give so much to, to have meals for the yogis, like at IMS, that um, I'm not sure whether there's a day free that, you know, where I'd be able to give. So I immediately asked, and they said yes. And it was on, I think, my second to last day or something. And then, um, and then I was able to give meals to the monks at that time, too. And so that day, when the time came, that kind of, um, you know, I was, I was looking forward to that day so much when I could give that meal, because I appreciated so much the people that were practicing around me, and I knew how the practice led to freedom. And I wanted to help each person have a stronger body so that they could practice, maybe just one day. And so um, when the food was given, I didn't eat then, and uh, I just saw that the food was being prepared, and I was really happy. And then I had been invited to go up and serve some of the food to the monks at that time. And Steve was the monk at that time. <laughs> he was the only American monk uh, with Sayadaw. And so, uh, as the food was being prepared and served, I sat with Sayadaw for a bit. This is a chance to have kind of an informal time with him. And I said, uh, and he asked, he said, Yogi Kamala, and you, um, you gave Donna food to the yogis today. And I said, yes. And I was so happy. You know, that happiness was so pervasive. And, you know, even to think of it, I, I could cry because it was really a big moment for me. Um, it wasn't a pride. It was just the happiness of letting go. You know, the happiness of giving. And so then, and he, he said, um, very good or something like that. And I could see how happy he was for me that I I could do that and that he shared my happiness. And he said, and, and also he said, and for the monks, uh, something like that. And I said, yes. And then 
when I said yes, I, I felt, you know, very, very happy, like tears of joy and happiness. And I could see Sayadaw for the first time, a little bit of softening on his face towards me. <laughs> he, he's kind of a, a fearless, but I appreciate it. And, um, and then, you know, I didn't need, I had never even talked to Steve at that time, of course. He couldn't even touch women uh, being a monk, so it was very far away. And, I, and at that time I thought, I was so happy because I could feed an American monk, and that someday this monk would teach a lot of American people and bring the Dharma. And I never knew at that time that I'd <laughs> Until one day, Sayadaw shamed me into teaching <laughs> by saying, don't be selfish with the Dhamma, and encouraged me. So, going a little over the time here, but generosity in, in daily life is very important. And the other thing is patience. The last thing I'll talk about, and you can, if you want to, look up the rest for yourself. Patience is really like a constancy with everything. You know, the ability to just wait. And in this world where we, it's kind of a push-button world, we want push-button answers to. We want push-button gratification and push-button um, response from our practice and whatever it is, if we can just learn to just wait, you know, that, that kind of patience that isn't all like a dam building up, but the kind of patience that's like a river flowing or like bamboo bending. And just, just wait. A lot of times, you know, things aren't going the way I think they should be going. And instead of saying anything or responding to the situation, I just wait. I just keep my mouth shut and I wait. And later on, when I see all the facts, or maybe I learn to be more tolerant or whatever, something else comes up where I can face the situation better. It's just so helpful to be able to wait. You know, it's kind of the sense of constancy. Patients almost have a uh, bad taste in the mouth here in, in the West. It's almost like, oh, I've got to be patient. The last story I have to tell is about patience. It's a story of a monk called, uh, a man called Matajiro, and he wanted uh, to be a great swordsman. And he went to the greatest swordsman that he knew in Japan, in, that, in uh, his country, and he told this great swordsman that he wanted to be as great as the teacher. And he asked to be his pupil. And uh, he said to him, how long will it take to become a master? Suppose I am your servant and I work and help you all the time. And the master said, uh, ten years. It will take ten years. And he said, but I want to learn this more quickly. I want to have this more quickly. Suppose I work twice as hard or thrice as hard. How long will it take? And he said, thirty years. (laughs) 
please, let me make it clear to you. I will not spare any energy or any moment of my time, any determination. I will do everything possible to become this master of sword as soon as possible. How long will it take? And the master said, 70 years. <laughs> so the, the master said to him, a pupil in such a hurry learns very slowly. <laughs> so we have to really look at it as a lifetime practice. Just to end, you know, tomorrow when we leave, there will be no more bells, and they've been a constant source of happiness for us, you know. Either it's the end of the practice, yeah, <laughs> or... <laughs> Or just to hear it so beautiful, even if it doesn't mark the end of practice. You know, just when we're hearing, it's so beautiful. And there's this beautiful uh, poem by a Zen master poet, Basho, and he said, The temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. You are the flowers. I added that you are the flowers. <laughs> in, that, in the old times, somebody would have a po- poem, a, a haiku, and you finished it. That's what um, lovers did. They give part of the haiku and the other one. So I'm connected to Basho now, and you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.